Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last week we saw how God revealed himself to Abraham to assure both Abraham and Sarah of his promises to give them a son, but also for the greater promise, son, who would save us from our sins. God did this to give Abraham a greater picture of what sort of savior he had come to be. He would not save humanity by acting from a distance. He would come. He would come in the flesh. And he offered this assurance to Abraham as he came before him to look him in the eye and speak to him face to face. And this is how our God chooses to act. He comes into the world and he deals with us in humility. He takes on human flesh, he dies for the sins of the world, and when he speaks, he doesn't speak through the glory and splendor of his majesty, but he speaks to us in humble means. And tonight, we saw another example of this as Jesus comes to speak. This time, he does not come in the form of a man, but he comes as something kind of odd and altogether different. It's so, something both spectacular in a lot of ways, but also somewhat ordinary. As God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And the spectacular thing about it is that it burns and isn't consumed. And, and here we do have a very beautiful image of Christ before his coming. As he appears as a non-consuming fire... We only, in our way, in our life, in the way we experience the world, only understand fire as something that consumes everything that it touches. You throw a log onto the fire, and that log is reduced to nothing but ashes. That's how fire works. It rapidly accelerates the decay of all that comes into contact with it. That's how fire is designed to work. And yet this fire does not destroy here we see that the fire is not for destruction, but for life. In Hebrews 12, we read, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us let, then thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And John answers, uh, and then we also see of St. John the Baptist talking about the coming Messiah. Sorry, I skipped the line. Uh, and it says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so here we have an image of the Lord coming, not for the destruction of the faithful, but for their redemption and their purification. He will burn up what is evil, and he will strengthen what is righteous. He will burn up the chaff so that the wheat remains. And here we have this perfect image of the burning bush. The burning bush comes not to consume and destroy and tear down, but to bring about flourishing and fullness of life. It is a burning fire, but one that restores. 
It puts things in their proper order. It makes them what they were created to be. It's a fire that sustains itself and does not need to consume fuel to exist. It simply is. It needs nothing to feed from. It needs nothing to fuel its existence. And what a magnificent picture we have of our God. He is. He does not need us. He does not need our efforts. He does not need our work. He does not need our prayer. He does not need our devotion. He doesn't even need us, really, to acknowledge him. Yet he acts for our good. He purifies and blesses us with his refining fire, and he does this solely out of divine love and mercy. The image of the burning bush is a beautiful image of Christ who is to come. Indeed, the one who speaks from this bush is the same as the coming Christ, and we'll see this both in what he promises to do, and what he promises, and what he calls himself. Because his promise is the redemption of Israel. The descendants of Abraham found themselves as slaves and captives in the land of Egypt. God had indeed multiplied them, made them a great nation, just as he promised, and, but now they were living in a foreign land. They were pressed into hard labor under the power of Pharaoh in Egypt. They did not possess the land promised to Abraham's children. And now the time had come once again for God to act. And he chose to act through his servant Moses. And so now he comes to Moses to call him into his service as he will send Moses into Egypt so that his people will be redeemed. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and now behold, the cry of my people Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out. And so he is the God who did wonders before Abraham. He's the God who preserved Isaac and multiplied Jacob. He is the God who brought Joseph and his brothers through many dangers and toils, and he is now the God who will deliver his children. He is the one who will go with Moses and bring his children out from the land of Egypt. And why? Well, for two reasons. And first, he has compassion. He sees his people suffering at the hands of the Egyptians, and he will not let that stand. He has heard their cries to him for help, and he will not deny his own. God is the helper of his chosen ones. He's not dispassionate, and he's not aloof in the presence of our suffering. He cares enough to intercede, and he does help. This is his character. God is an ever-present help in trouble. And second, he acts for the sake of his promise. He will bring the children of Israel out from the land of Egypt because that's what he said he was going to do. And he has more for them than just civil freedom. 
He has bound up his work of salvation into this nation of people, and he said they will possess the promised land. And even more, their freedom from Egypt and their possession of the land of Canaan is the groundwork of a greater promise that God said at the beginning. It is the promise that there would be one who would come to undo the effects of sin. It is from this nation that dwells in this land that God said his Savior will come. And he will be born of the sons of Abraham at the right time, at the right place, just as we're told in Galatians, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's more at stake here than just the freedom of the Israelites. There is our freedom from the condemnation of sin that results in death and hell. God's actions here through Moses have more to do with Jesus than anything else. Because Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the one who is born into this world to redeem man from sin. The Lord who speaks from the burning bush is none other than Jesus himself. The Bible calls the man, the one who is speaking to Moses through the burning bush, uh, the Malak Yahweh which means the angel of the Lord. Malak means messenger, and certainly throughout the Bible, angels serve as God's messengers. But this case is pretty significant, because Jesus, before his conception and birth, is speaking. It is Jesus, nonetheless. He is speaking of doing what Jesus always does, that Malak Yahweh that angel of the Lord, is referred to as the Lord himself. And what does the Lord do? But he redeems. And we need this redemption because we too, just like the Israelites, are bound. We're captives. We are bound by our sins, and we cannot free ourselves no matter how hard we try. Left to ourselves, we remain sinners standing before an angry God, and we cannot get out of it. And we cry with St. Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We need redemption. In our second reading this evening, we looked at Luke 4, and here we have Jesus, after beginning his ministry in Galilee, coming to Nazareth, his hometown. And he enters the synagogue and reads from the Isaiah scroll. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says something that shocks everyone. He says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here he is saying that God has come to do what he's promised to do. He is coming to proclaim good news. And in this good news, captives will be liberated. Blind eyes will be opened. Freedom will be granted to those oppressed. And God will usher in a new age of his eternal favor. Jesus is saying that is fulfilled in their midst because of who stands in their midst speaking to them. He's saying he is the Lord. He is the Lord who has come from heaven to earth to free them. 
And that is the claim that Jesus is going to make over and over and over again. He's going to claim to be the same Lord who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And we see that in his name itself. When Moses hears what God is sending him to do, he's overcome with fear. He's overcome with anxiety. He does not feel up for the task of speaking for God and leading the people out of Egypt. And so first he says, well, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God simply says, go, I will be with you. And then Moses is concerned about the people. He says, they'll want a name. When I say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent me, they're going to want to know what his name is. They'll want to know who is this God who is delivering them. And they're going to be skeptical. And to this God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am, or Yahweh, as it's uh, most normally said in Hebrew, uh, that is his name. And just like the fire that burns and needs no fuel, he is. He is the creator, not the created. He does not need anyone or anything for his existence. He simply is. He exists over and above all of it. He does not need us. He does not need Moses. But he loves. He loves us. He loves Moses. He loves his Israel. He loves you. And so he acts. And this is Jesus. Jesus' names, Jesus' name, Jesus, means I am saves. Yahweh saves. Yahshua. He says over and over again, this is who he truly is. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus refers to himself this way. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Last week we heard Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the God who speaks from the burning bush. He is the voice that declares to Moses that he is going to lead his people out of captivity. It is his command that delivers Israel from Pharaoh. He is the one who leads the people by day and night through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke and fire. From, he's the one who speaks from Mount Sinai. He's the one who will dwell in the tabernacle. He is the one who will conquer the nations and settle the sons of Abraham in their promised land. And now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying he's done something even greater because he is there to free them from their sins. This is what Jesus has come into the world to do. He's come to be the Redeemer. He has come to bring us out from the bondage to sin that possesses us into true freedom in the gospel. Because we are captives no longer. We are a free Christian people. This is the language that God uses throughout the scriptures. We see this happen in Romans 6. It says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, slaves, and to lawlessness, slaves, leading to more lawlessness, more slavery, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to your sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so here we see that God comes to us in the person of Christ, that same Lord that did such great signs and wonders to bring Israel out from Egypt, did even greater signs and greater wonders to redeem us from sin. The Lord is not a burning bush. The Lord is not... Um, a, a great and mighty thunder. The Lord comes as a babe in a manger. And that babe in the manger comes to us in all humility to be our Redeemer, to free us from our captivity of sin and death by binding himself to his body so that those things die with him. As it says in Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Those things that bind and enslave us, he has made into nothing. Those sins that would bind us and treat us as slaves have been put under his feet. They are put to death in the death of Christ upon the cross, and that means something for us. Just as Moses led Israel out of Egypt, never to return to Egypt, Jesus leads us out from our sins, never to return to them. If you read about the Exodus, it seems like every time the people were upset with God or Moses, every time they were uncomfortable, every time they were being tested, if they were hungry, if they were thirsty, if they were tired, what did they do? They threatened to go back to Egypt. God quickly would disabuse them of those ideas. He disciplined his people, he led them, he cared for them, he helped them in their need so that Egypt became a distant memory. And so it is with us. Jesus frees us from our sins and he does so by offering the gospel of forgiveness that he has worked for us through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He works those for us now. Whenever our sins become appealing, we're not to fall back into that old captivity. We are to press forward into the freedom of the gospel, and we return to the forgiveness of sins. It's always available to us by faith in what Christ has done to us. And that's why we have the means of grace. That's why we have the church and pastors and baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why we have preaching and the absolution. It's because God is continually revealing to us his mercy that he works for us through the babe that was born in the manger. In the same way that God repeated over and over and over again, I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he says, I am the God who forgives your sins. I am the God who became like you to die your death. 
I am the God who became like you to slay your captors through my death on the cross. These things that God gives us, these little gifts of grace, these are all in place to secure us in our freedom through the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus has beaten our foes so that they no longer have an eternal grasp on you. We belong to Jesus. He is our Redeemer. He has purchased and won us. He is the God who is. He is. But we cannot be apart from Him. He is without us. He is beyond us. And yet He makes Himself to be like us. He bears our flesh. He takes our weakness upon His self. He suffers our hell. He conquers our sin. And it all begins with a manger in Bethlehem. Not a miraculous burning bush, no plagues and divided seas. Those are small potatoes compared to this. It is our God in the flesh. And he has led us out of bondage to sin and death. He has conquered these foes. As death is swallowed up in victory, and our sinful flesh is bound and put to death. The devil is conquered. Christ is our king. Jesus lives. And he's leading us to a greater promised land. And he does this both because he loves us and he cannot help but help us. He does this because of who he has promised to be. And he makes good on his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world. We thank you for the image of the burning bush. We thank you for Christ, who is the refining fire that burns out the dross of our sins, leaving us purified for your kingdom. We thank you for the great I Am, who leads us out of captivity. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds of the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.